This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. What follows is an interview originally recorded by the Australian podcaster, Dan Palmer, for an episode of his excellent show, Making Permaculture Stronger. I've known Dan since before he started his podcast. As I recall, it was at 1 or 2 a.m. on the east coast of the United States when we connected over Skype several years ago to talk about his plan for starting a new podcast with a deep focus on the design process as it applies to permaculture and what we can learn from experts within and without the community. As my focus over the years has been on the breadth of what it means to practice permaculture and not the specifics of design, Dan and I talked about how to develop an interview style and choose how much to prepare for those conversations ahead of time, how to find your narrative voice and make decisions early on that establish your on-air presence and presentation. After a rather enjoyable chat that ended as I could stay awake no longer and he needed to head to his evening meal, I've continued to follow Dan's show over the years and find my own inspiration in him talking on the vital subject of design. With that admiration, I jumped at the opportunity when he recently reached out to ask if I'd want to share an interview he'd recorded with the founder of Holistic Management. Needing little introduction, the Zimbabwean ecologist Alan Savory has spent decades developing and refining how we can manage complexity in the environment, on our farms, and in our lives. In a forward-thinking approach that walks us backward from the vision of how we want our world, land, or life to be, we can then look well beyond the moment and see where we want to go and how to get there. This is, of course, a simplified explanation of a fascinating and deep system for managing a wide range of issues, but which has roots in fighting, desertification, and reversing climate change. Enjoy this conversation between Dan and Alan, and I'll join you again after with some thoughts and a number of announcements for the show. Alan, thanks so much for joining me for this conversation. I'd love to start with the deep relevance of managing holistically for permaculture designers. In particular, how we start the process of managing holistically when commencing new projects. As permaculture designers, we regularly encounter clients who, as soon as we ask them what they'd like help with, they bombard us with a long list of goals. We want a pond and ducks and an orchard and a vegetable garden and a campsite and, and, and. Could you please explain what it means to engage clients on a deeper level than the goals they might present us with, and how we might go about this in practice within the context of managing holistically? Sure. Let's see if I can help, Dan. You can either start by explaining what the reductionist management is and how essential it is to manage holistically. That is what is needed if permaculture, or in fact any agriculture, is to be regenerative. And that is essential if civilization is to survive now facing global desertification and climate change, in which agriculture is playing as large, maybe larger role than coal and oil. But that gets boring in today's short attention span and people's eyes glaze over. Everyone just wants to be told what to do and how to do it. It is almost impossible, I find, to stop farmers wanting to know what to do and to help them decide how to make those decisions that they don't want to hear about doesn't happen. Alan, just tell me what to do. I don't want to hear about reductionist management and how it is the single cause of almost all that ails us, including desertification and climate change. So the best way, if there has been no training, 
in how to manage holistically is to simply do it. Think trying to explain how to ride a bike versus having a bicycle and starting to just ride it. The more you explain to someone how to ride a bike, the more confusing it gets. But a person simply riding a bike gets it in a day. So, let's assume I am advising or helping you, Dan, the farmer. I would simply say, Dan, let's not talk about your crops, orchard, ducks, cattle, or whatever, until we can both understand the context in which you are deciding what to do. What are you managing here? I gather you, Dan, are making all the decisions. Does anyone else make any management decisions? No, only you. Okay, that is great. So, Dan, what land are you managing? Answer, this 500-hectare farm. Okay. What financial resources do you have? Answer, none but a small salary in a part-time job while I farm. Okay, so that's all the money needs to be generated from the land. That's clear. Now I have an idea of what the whole situation you're managing in this case is and that we have very little money to work with. Before you can decide to build that dam, how to graze your animals or anything else, there's more I need to know from you. Dan, we manage always for one main reason, which is to improve our lives. So let me ask you now, very personally and deeply, how do you want your life to be? Answer, something like, I want to be prosperous, independent, get married, raise a family, be healthy, free to pursue my own beliefs in my culture. Okay, that is great. If you want to live a life like that, then let me ignore the state of your farm now, which I see doesn't look very good, and ask you this. Then, what will your land have to be like 200 years from now if your great-great-grandchildren want to live a life like you want? Don't talk about species or any of today's issues. Simply describe how this land of yours will have to be. So so that we get away from obsession with weeds, gullies, or anything else, Dan, let's describe your land using four processes. How water will cycle, minerals or neutrals, nutrients will cycle, how the biological community dynamics will function, and how sunlight energy will flow to support your descendants. Answer, rainfall will need to be fully effective. Nutrient cycling rapid and high. Biologically very complex, diverse communities with solar energy flow very high indeed. Great, okay. Now, one more question. If you are managing to improve your life, Dan, you told me you are the only person who makes decisions. However, like all farmers and people, you are totally dependent on other people. So you have many people in your life who you live with or deal with. Friends, clients, suppliers, etc., etc. You're going to need their support. What can you do to make them support you through thick and thin? 
The answer? Nothing you cannot change other people. So what can you, Dan, do? As Gandhi so wisely said, you can only be the change you expect. So now, Dan, please tell me how you yourself are going to have to be for people who are really a resource base to you to want to support you at all times. I don't want fancy words, a list of values, or any branding, marketing hype. At the end of the day, Dan, you are judged by your behavior, not your words. So now, how must you be? And you will describe how you are going to always behave in a few words. All this is very deep and very personal, and is never to be used or bandied about, as I see people doing, trying even to use it in marketing. That is wrong. At this point, by simply doing it and not explaining, you have the nucleus of what is needed, a holistic context to guide all management actions as you go forward on your farm. And this, in three parts, a quality of life statement, a description of the land as it will have to be to ensure that future generations can live lives like you want, and how you are going to have to behave to ensure people support you and your family. Now, Dan, you might ask me about the dam you want to build, for instance, or raising pigs, chickens, growing any crop. I would say yes. Let's look at that, and I would perhaps ask why you want to build it, run pigs or whatever. Always, and without exception, because it is how humans all make decisions, you would describe either that you are doing it to meet a need, or you're doing it to meet a desire, or you're doing it to address a problem. That covers countless trillions of decisions humans make daily and always have done. I would explain that when we reduce the full web of social, cultural, environmental, and economic complexity that is inescapable in our lives to simple context like meeting our needs, our desires, or addressing problems, that is reductionist management. So now, Dan, you will still have such needs and desires. There's nothing wrong with them, and you will still want such needs and desires as well as you will still need to address problems. But, and here comes the difference, you will now no longer have these as the sole reason or context for your actions. You will now have those needs, desires, or problems, but you will deal with them in a holistic context of how you want your life to be. Now, open your mind to all science, all sources of knowledge, And just as before, consider any action as you would have done in the past through one of more of many factors. Past experience, expert advice, friends' advice, cost, research results, compromise, expediency, cash flow, profitability, peer pressures, risk, intuition, etc., etc., etc. And when you are about to decide simply make sure that what you're going to do 
is in line not with the need or the problem or the desire, but with your own very personal holistic context. Most people do this well and almost intuitively as long as they really want that life more than anything else in life. If they only pay lip service to it, they continue with reductionist management and always unintended consequences due to the complexity. And when there is any doubt at all, we have seven context-checking filters or questions. These you can learn later. Alan, thank you so much for that beautiful explanation of how to start managing holistically and for clarifying this transition from reductionist to holistic management where we move away from merely addressing problems, needs or desires, as you explained, to doing so in a way that aligns with this three-part holistic context we've articulated for ourselves. One aspect of how this lands for me is a sense of moving from more of a reactive orientation to life where we're constantly responding to problems and opportunities the world's throwing our way, to a more proactive orientation where we are consciously and holistically deciding toward however we deeply want our life to be. Does that sit right for you, that an aspect of moving from reductionist to holistic management is moving from a reactive to a proactive orientation? Dan, you have been more astute than most people in that you have realized right away that managing one's life, farm, or any business holistically becomes proactive. This began first with the management of the land as the holistic management framework was developing. If you read my textbook, you will see in the framework a feedback loop at the bottom. What I realized long ago was that nature's complexity, which is what we're managing, is beyond human comprehension. What we have been engaged in for thousands of years was reactive or adaptive management. We do our best making a decision to meet a need or a desire based on research, expert advice, etc., etc. And then almost always we experience unintended consequences, like organic, sustainable agriculture destroying civilizations in every region of the world. Nobody intended that. So, through millennia, we took an action, saw the results, and we reacted or adapted. So the oldest management in the world is adaptive management. When I realized this, I introduced the idea that when we take any new action affecting the environment, then, no matter how well supported it is by research, expert opinion, or anything else, we should always assume it is wrong. On that assumption, you would now say, okay, in this case, assuming I am wrong, where will I first detect it? When you have decided that, you then set up a feedback loop, starting with the simplest possible measurement or documentation so that you detect any change as rapidly as possible. If the change in the ecosystem processes is going the way you intend, well and good. If going the other way, you back off immediately and relook at the decision or action. Proactively managing to bring about the results you intend, not adaptive management reacting to changes.
An example so that you get the idea. When I first realized that nothing but changed animal behavior and greatly increased physical impact of the animals could reverse desertification, that was new. Never thought of or tried throughout history and totally condemned by all scientists, environmentalists, ranchers, universities, etc. So, with the very first ranchers where we did this, I set up a feedback loop based on the assumption I was wrong as everyone predicted I was. Where I had been taught at university that plant spacing in grasslands was a function of climate, I now believed it was rather a function of animal behavior overriding climate. So I decided that the very earliest indication I was wrong would come from the soil surface and plant spacing. And then looking at the soil surface, I asked what I could measure that would indicate almost immediately that I was wrong. That was, I decided, the nature of the top millimeter of the soil. Did the capping break or not? And from that, did plant spacing start to close up or open out? On every ranch in five, in five countries I was working in at the time, the plant spacing began to decrease, litter and soil cover to increase, so we knew we were on the right lines. One way I got early clients to understand this was with brush or wildlife. A rancher, for instance, would ask me, Alan, as I start managing holistic, like I'm doing, what is going to happen to the brush encroachment on my ranch? Or, Alan, what is going to happen to the impala or the bushbuck? Those are typical questions associated with what they were accustomed to reductionist, adaptive, or reactionary management. I would simply reply asking them, what do you want to happen to the brush? Or what do you want to happen to the impala or the bushbuck? Tell me what you want to happen, because that is what your management is going to produce. Once we got this concept of proactive management operating, as we managed holistically, it became easy to extend it to all aspects, financial, social, and land or environment, as it described in the textbook. And most of all, to build in the proactive nature of the framework in policy development. Almost all government and large environmental organization policies we find lead to unintended consequences. Examples the policies of all the major environmental organizations and governments, including the UN policies here, are leading to the worst cases of habitat destruction, biodiversity loss, and contribution to desertification and climate change, being our 36 odd national parks surrounding my home in Africa. The opposite of what they all intend, but their policies remain unchanged year after year after year. Other examples, the US government soil conservation policy actually increased soil erosion. Their policy on noxious plants costs over a billion dollars a year and has done for over 40 years. It has not resulted in killing out a single noxious plant in any state, but it has poisoned the water, caused land health problems, 
and done far more damage, but it continues unchanged. The worst I have come across was a policy in India over 200 years old, but followed by their forest service still every day, although everyone just laughed because its purpose ended over a century ago. That's awesome, Alan. Thanks again. I, I love this idea of making decisions proactively and then proactively seeking evidence that the decision might be wrong or creating an unintended consequence in order to proactively make the next decision in a process of continuous course correction. Taking even baby steps in this direction has given me a real boost to my own sense of agency and power to contribute toward changes I believe in while living a meaningful life. One thing I'd love to ask you about here is my sense that managing holistically in your sense sheds much light on the Eisenhower-Covey matrix of urgency and importance. For the process of articulating in holistic context is, is the process of defining important for the decision makers in question. Once this is in hand, we can consciously decide to spend more time on what is important to us and less time on what isn't which in turn frees up the mental energy to start then noticing the difference between what is urgent and what isn't. Then, by making time and space for things that are important and not urgent, such as articulating a holistic context, we can slowly remove the root causes of so much of the important and urgent stuff. For example, routine dental checkups, which are important and not urgent, reduce the emergency toothaches, which are important and urgent, or servicing the water pump, important and not urgent, reduces the chance of the cow smashing up the trough and suffering dehydration because the pump stopped working, a situation that's important and urgent. Increasingly, we're then able to spend more and more time doing things that are important and not urgent, which to me is where most of life's most quality moments happen. After explaining the idea of a holistic context even a little, I've had people come up and thank me for having a clear way to define what important is so they could then navigate the importance and urgency matrix much more successfully. Before coming back to the relation of holistic management and permaculture, I'd love to hear how this does or doesn't resonate with you. And I'll also let listeners know that I'll have the matrix I'm talking about in the show notes if you'd like a reference point. You are, I believe, correct. But I had never thought of it in the way you are doing. I'm very aware of the excellent concept of using that breakdown, urgent and important, that occupies us most, versus not urgent, but very important, that gets neglected. I think the very reason we manage at all is with the intent to improve our lives, but few succeed as they hoped. There are, I believe, two main reasons why most of us are less successful in leading the lives we would like. One is best explained, I believe, by Robert Fritz in his book, Path of Least Resistance. In that he explains so well why people make wonderful resolutions each year about being fit, and there is a multi-billion dollar industry in running shoes and exercise machines, but most people don't follow through and the machines lie gathering dust. This, more than anything else, I believe, explains why thousands of ranchers and farmers have undergone training in how to manage holistically, but then reverted back to reductionist management. The other reason we don't achieve what we want in our lives is that all humans unknowingly are managing the complexity of our lives, our organizations, our businesses, environment and economy 
in a universally reductionist way, reducing the web of complexity to the context of meeting our needs, our desires, or addressing problems. So yes, I think you're right, that once any person or family really think deeply and agree about the lives they desire, and they develop the needed holistic context, it has in effect indicated to them what is absolutely vital, not just important. Clarity on how they want their lives to be, clarity on what the state of their life-supporting environment has to be, generations to come, and clarity on how they must be or behave if they want people important in their lives to be fully supportive through thick and thin. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, and that resonates with me that what you mean by holistic context is going beyond important to what's absolutely vital. My next question is whether you'd have anything to offer to the question of how we can most usefully think about the relation of holistic management to permaculture for those aspiring to work with both. I've heard people say that holistic management brings decision-making and permaculture brings design. I've heard people say that holistic management is a specific decision-making and land management approach that can sit within permaculture as a general sort of wardrobe of earth and community healing tools. On the flip side, I've heard people say that holistic management is the broader approach we might at times decide to bring permaculture into, say when we're initially designing our gardens or farms. Can you help clarify what seems to me to be widespread confusion about the relation? Let me try to clarify this this important difference. People are confused because we always seem to learn something new by relating it to what we know. We even learn new words that way, and we learn to remember things easier by relating them to something we are familiar with. So for the moment, try to think of permaculture and managing holistically as entirely different. Don't try to relate managing holistically to permaculture. You are familiar with permaculture and your whole excellent movement. Seeking permanent agriculture through sound principles and design concepts. The different zones as you move out from, say, the home or center as zone one, that essentially is permaculture, as it has been repeatedly explained to me by many people, including Bill Mollison. And in the many minds and writings of permaculture practitioners, you have a vast body of knowledge that permaculture people keep communicating and helping one another understand and apply. Now, as you think of permaculture and observe, you will see that some really wonderful results with the inner zones, some excellent design principles extending to outer zones, etc. And we see increasingly more integration of small stock, poultry, rabbits into the polyculture, cropping, and food production. And this people are achieving by making their decisions to meet their needs, their desires, or solve problems. However, if we think in terms of agriculture being the production of food and fiber from the land's, world's land and waters as it is, I'm sure you will see gaps. I do not hear how permaculture principles and design is going to address the major problems with the fisheries or the oceans. 
or for that matter, even the vast teak forests surrounding my home in Africa. These forests are larger than some countries, and all these forests are dying gradually because of desertification. No amount of planting trees, using machines to develop swales, or any change of design is going to get the main trees germinating and establishing. Also, it is not clear at all how we could use permaculture design and principles to prevent the 36 national parks around my home to not be the worst examples we have here of biodiversity loss contributing to climate change. You will also note that it is difficult to get any of the millions of hectares of vast monoculture cropping areas changed as we have to do through changing agricultural policies or the immigration, noxious plant, drug or terrorism policies changed with permaculture design and principles. And to tackle global finance driving environmental destruction is, I believe, beyond permaculture design and principles. Okay, so let's leave permaculture now. So what does it mean to be managing holistically to enable people in any walk of life to address the unavoidable web of social, cultural, economic and environmental complexity? What does this mean? It means people recognizing and clarifying what is being managed, getting that whole clear. Is it a single person in a job in a city? Is it a family who are farming? Is it a corporation manufacturing widgets? Is it a nation's government developing an agricultural policy? Is it ensuring good governance in a nation? Is it a UN body trying to develop sustainable development goals that will go beyond addressing symptoms of desertification and failing once more? In every one of these cases, we have discovered that we can address the full complexity simultaneously by using the holistic management framework to decide what best actions and to develop policies. Remember that almost all scientists are now agreed that humans are causing rapid climate change. And we have known for thousands of years that humans were causing global desertification. That means we are doing so in the only way that is possible through our management of nature and human organizations. When you think of this whole spectrum of management, remember the things we manage are our lives, families, communities, organizations, and nature. Everything else we do is making things using technology. All that we manage is described in system science jargon as either complex soft systems, human organizations, or complex natural systems, nature. So everything we're managing is complex. With all that we are managing, clearly holistic management doesn't have a large body of knowledge like permaculture does. But using the holistic framework enables people to embrace all known science and all other sources of knowledge and begin to manage complexity. And this is humanity's Achilles heel, our inability to manage complexity. 
the only areas in the holistic framework where there is some body of knowledge unique to managing holistically is specified in my textbook. That is mostly the key insights that made the development of holistic management possible and some new knowledge tied to financial planning, to planning of livestock infrastructure on land, as well as, of course, the holistic plan grazing process to reverse global desertification. There are two basic ways of managing, and that is really what we all need to understand. Reductionist management, as is all management, and as management has always been. All ages, all cultures, all humans. And then there's the newly developed holistic way of management, managing, that hopefully will keep being perfected and understood. Right now, most permaculture practitioners are engaged in applying permaculture principles and design while engaged in the universal reductionist management. A few, but increasing in numbers, have understood and trained with the Savory Institute or are involved in the many locally-led and managed holistic management hubs now around the world, managing holistically and applying permaculture principles and design. I hope this clarifies more than it confuses. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, this is so helpful. I was excited to hear you mention Fritz's book, The Path of Least Resistance. I've found the ideas in that book powerfully complementary with holistic management, especially the idea of consciously clarifying, then paying attention to the tension between where our lives are and how we want our lives to be. We can then use this tension to create a path of least resistance. Our actions then naturally flow down. Yes, Fritz, I believe, captured best why so many people start something with every good intent and determination, only to shortly thereafter drop it and revert to their old ways, or simply pick little bits of the new that don't disturb their old ways, old ways too much. We've experienced this with thousands of people and managing holistically. Alan, while I have you, I'd love to ask a little more about this topic of managing complexity in a holistic way. I understand from much of what you've shared that the key distinction the future of humanity depends on is that between reductionist and holistic management. Yesterday, I was corresponding with a deep thinker. I made the statement that I believe the greatest danger to humanity is not fossil fuels, climate change or desertification, and the massive environmental destruction being driven by global finance. The greatest danger to humanity is our inability to manage complexity. I say that because every one of the things we are blaming is a direct result of our policies and management of our resources. And that management has always been reductionist, hence the failure of many civilizations and now the global threat. So the idea is that holistic management allows us to manage complexity. Yes, the holistic framework enables us in all walks of life to manage complexity. Like any breakthrough, it is in its infancy. 35 years old roughly from when thousands of us working on it got to the point where we could no longer even cause failure in theory. Given that before we can manage something, we need to be able to perceive it, 
I was wondering what guidance you might offer about developing our ability to even see complexity, let alone manage it. In particular, I'm struck by how we tend to see the world in a mechanistic way, as if it were a giant machine. Yes, this is what many recognize as our mechanistic worldview of modern science. I once listened to a brilliant scientist giving a talk to a major gathering in Texas. He was explaining that scientists were beginning to see that everything was connected, etc. All the right wording. And then to emphasize and make it clear to, to his audience, he used an analogy. And he said, we're beginning to see it as though our Earth is a giant machine with billions of interconnecting parts. Oh, gosh. I mean, surely managing holistically requires seeing the world not as a dead assemblage of connected parts, but as a living dynamic whole, an organism, as it were. Do you have any pointers for how we might shift the lens we look through from a mechanistic, reductionistic paradigm to something more in tune with living, evolving whole systems? No, I have no magic or way of getting the world to think holistically. But I believe it is coming about and that it is accelerating at present this changing worldview. Right now, the COVID pandemic is assisting greatly in shifting the worldview. However, that is not going to be enough. Why I say this is because we would be arrogant to think we are the first people in the history of the world to think holistically. I believe the mechanistic worldview is relatively recent and developed mostly with Western science. There is evidence apparently that most past people and cultures viewed their lives as far more closely tied to their environment. I hear that Native American tribes saw their connection closely and tried, in view of that, to think seven generations ahead with any major environmental decisions. I believe the San Bushmen in my part of the world saw themselves and their environment and the animals they fed on as inseparable. So deep is their understanding as hunter-gatherers that they, and I believe some nomadic people, abandoned their old people to die at some point. That to me indicates a very deep understanding that once people are past breeding and adulthood, they're no longer contributing fully to the group. Every person at that point becomes a liability to the group because the group is totally dependent on its life-supporting environment. So thinking holistically doesn't cut it. Essential as it is to shift society's view to a holistic worldview, that will not save humanity any more than it saved any past civilization thinking more holistically. To save civilization and humanity, we have actually to change how we make decisions in our day-to-day -day management and lives and particularly where we operate at scale through institutions and policies. Only by managing holistically and thus managing complexity can we address all that ails us, including global desertification and climate change. Thanks again, Alan. I'm so appreciating your perspective on these matters. One thing I'm wondering regards the thousands of people trained in holistic management who you've mentioned soon revert back to reductionistic management. 
Are you noticing the proportion of folk for whom it sticks and doesn't shifting over the years? Have you been finding better ways of introducing it that increases the stick rate, or maybe those for whom it sticks arrive at the training already with a different attitude or perspective? This is obviously a crucially important matter, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how we might increase the odds given we're at the 11th hour. There are many factors playing on what you call the stick rate, and I really have no answers but to continue to observe and try to learn. Earlier, it all seemed so simple. As I discovered what we call the new insights that made holistic management possible, all outlined in my textbook, the early ranchers, mainly who sought my help, were open about it. They came because they were going broke, doing all the right things advocated by range scientists, researchers, and agricultural economists. They had nothing to lose and were desperate. Then, as literally thousands came to me for training, the main appeal was that I could and did guarantee doubling their stocking rate while improving the land. However, by the time I was operating in North America, and not only in Africa and South America, I knew that any focus on just the land or animals led to serious unintended consequences. But ranchers did not want to hear about social and economic considerations. I then went through a period of refusing to allow anyone to attend one of my grazing management workshops unless they first attended a holistic financial planning workshop. That led to increased successes and to people thanking me for forcing them to get financial and social factors right first before building fences or increasing cattle. However, despite a university published independent study showing that early adopters who came to me for training averaged far greater profits right across the United States, in fact, 300% increase in profit, the stick rate consistently remained low. A major factor in this I learned from Professor Everett Rogers, who wrote the book Diffusion of Innovations, and who served on a think tank with me at one time. Rogers described how when people learn something new, they generally give it a name, a new name, and a twist of their own. This is ego at play. As a result, Within a few months of me starting to train thousands of ranchers and academics in the United States, there were about 13 new grazing systems being promoted. Tragically, these many people dropped the entire punchline and reason for success. All management being in a holistic context and using the holistic planned grazing process. Even as I write, I am observing exchanges around the world now saying how we have to mimic the natural movement of herds of large animals as in the past. All of this comes from holistic management framework and my TED talk. However, such thinking combined with the reductionist management of those promoting it will lead to endless unintended consequences because they are making no attempt to manage the complexity or to understand the planning process with livestock that enables any practitioner to guarantee good results.
So in summary, after decades, I have no idea how to increase the stick rate or to stop distortion and dumbing down, causing confusion and delay in healing our environment, economies, communities, and more. Incidentally, this problem is not unique to me or the concept of holistic management. It is universal. Andre Vosan's work I noted being totally distorted by academics and farmers, so much so that in the United States, my wife and I had his book reprinted so that people could return to the original work. Also, the brilliant writing of Aldo Leopold in his Game Management and his focus on the importance of habitat for any species. I see professional academic wildlife managers advising policies of governments and the large environmental organizations today, such as I see in the 36 national parks around where I live, that are the most shocking examples of habitat destruction for wildlife and humans and biodiversity loss far more dangerous than the poaching taking place. Thanks, Alan. Another question I have is whether you're aware of initiatives to make managing holistically more accessible to everybody. I often come across people that hear your name and start sharing their, typically uninformed, I might say, opinions about the grazing side of holistic management. I'm passionate about communicating to everybody, be they vegans, anti-livestock activists, or whomever, that the underlying decision-making framework is powerfully useful in any context whatsoever and is not inherently tied to holistic grazing. I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts about this. Dan, we know the problem. Partly this is our fault, but it was unavoidable. There are two counterintuitive and major paradigm shifts for all of humanity involved in learning for the first time in history how we might manage complexity. Not only that, but most scientists and society do not even know that the greatest danger to humanity is not fossil fuels, livestock, global finance, driving environmental destruction, etc., as I've spoken about. It is our inability to manage the social, cultural, environmental and economic complexity that is the single cause of almost all that ails and threatens us. First, there was our discovery that it is simply not possible to reverse thousands of years of man-made desertification using all of the tools known to humankind and scientists advising world leaders. We're a tool-using species and have always really only had two tools with which to manage our environment. Technology in all of its ramifications and fire. As I explained in the now famous TED talk, we have no option but to do the unthinkable and use livestock properly managed, meaning with the holistic planned grazing process, to reverse global desertification, playing a major role in climate change. Secondly, there is the paradigm-shifting insight that from our emergence as humans, managing to improve our lives as we've always done has always been reductionist, using a genetically embedded, simple decision-making framework. This human underlying decision-making framework 
is recognizable in all tool-using species and in us from our earliest cave dwellings to our most sophisticated team of interdisciplinary scientists today. Increasingly, the world is coming to accept that we live in a holistic and not a mechanistic world, and that daily we live in this web of social, cultural, environmental and economic complexity that is frankly beyond human comprehension. Stripped to the core, all humans make decisions, as I've said several times, to meet our needs, our desires, or to address problems. And to manage our environment at large, we have only technology and fire, or the idea of resting our environment to allow recovery, commonly called conservation today. When in such complexity, the context or reason for our actions becomes meeting our needs, desires, or addressing problems, it can only be called reductionist. So in summary, you're correct. It is a pity that because all of the issues involved in society accepting new insights and the fact that all human endeavors on any large scale have to be through organizations or institutions themselves, complex soft systems that we manage and the profound importance of developing the holistic management framework is being clouded and obscured. Some of this I spoke about recently in the United Kingdom at their groundswell gathering of farmers. Thanks, Alan, and thanks for the YouTube link to that presentation at the groundswell gathering, which I'll link to in the show notes, and which leads into another question I have for you, which is that I understand for a long time, but especially in recent years, you've been looking at institutional stupidity and what it would mean to manage holistically when it comes to policy development in national and international governance. While the YouTube presentation lays out what it would mean for a whole country to have and manage toward a national holistic context, I'd be curious to hear of your latest insights or reflections on this subject and whether you're aware of any promising efforts or experiments in managing holistically at this kind of scale. Let's see how I can respond with least repetition. Perhaps if I use a bulleted summary as I strip this down to the simplest logic and common sense that we know institutions are incapable of. We have never doubted we are causing global desertification. And now almost all scientists agree we are causing climate change. This can only mean that our management and policies dictating management are the cause of climate change. There can be no other conclusion. We can no more adapt to climate change than the proverbial slowly boiled frog. So policies change or civilizations globally fail with all businesses and all human endeavor. If we are to address this grave danger, remember it cannot be done by us as individuals. We can only act at scale, large scale, through organizations which are called institutions when formed for religious or professional purposes. 
Agriculture is not crop production. It is the production of food and fiber from the world's land and waters, forestry, fisheries, wildlife food, livestock, wild plants and crop production. That is agriculture. Almost all of the Earth's land and oceans are now involved in agriculture, feeding people. With roughly 6% of the globe's surface growing crops, roughly 20% of the land surface of the Earth growing crops. Thus, about 95% of the Earth's surface is non-cropland agriculture, feeding humans mainly from animal life. Agriculture, globally, is totally dependent on four processes through which our ecosystem functions in all environments. They are water cycle, mineral or nutrient cycle, biological dynamics, the life with stability and provided by diversity, and solar energy flow to all life through life. Agriculture is destroying soil, soil life, ocean life, rangelands, savannas, tropical forests, biodiversity, without which civilization cannot continue, is increasing even in national parks, this biological diversity loss. Insect populations are falling dramatically. Continental shelves, the most productive areas of our oceans, are silting with the soil coming from destroyed land. And all, while chemical and electromagnetic and plastic pollution are increasing and reaching every part of the world, accumulating in biological food chains and in humans. While our mismanagement of coal, oil and gas is extremely dangerous, it is theoretically possible to replace fossil resources as these are with benign energy sources using technology something we will make. We will make electricity from geothermal or from nature or from atomic, whatever, but we will once more be making something. Many minds, including institutional minds, are focusing on alternative energy sources because humanity believes in technology providing solutions. Agriculture is doing even more damage to our life-supporting environment than fossil fuels, ensuring continued desertification and climate change, even if fossil fuel use stops entirely tomorrow. Climate change will continue because of agriculture. Agriculture is in humanity's Achilles heel in many ways, being ignored by institutions universities, environmental organizations, government and international agencies, including COPs, uh, Conference of Party gatherings uh, concerning climate, of which there have been 25, COP1 to COP25, resulting in confusion and inaction. 
common sense tells any individual, scientist or layperson, that agriculture should be based on the biological sciences, including ecology, but institutional minds are basing mainstream agriculture on marketing of technology and chemistry. We are a tool-using animal, and for all of history, have only rarely had two tools with which to manage our environment, technology in some form or fire. Other than those, we have the concept of resting the environment to allow recovery of biodiversity. So understandably, institutions only advocate the use of technology in some form, fire or conservation as the environmental solution to every problem. For example, using technology to plant trees to address desertification or climate change. And that institutions uh, advocate, support, because society believes in technology and society believes in planting trees. Remember, in my TED talk on desertification, I explained why it is simply not possible to address desertification and thus climate change using only technology, fire or conservation, allowing biodiversity to recover under protection. Not a single scientist in any field or any university has shown where what I'm saying is wrong over the last 60 years. Those are some of the key reminders and all I believe are factual. They are points I have made many times in many words over half a century almost and they have never been refuted. To my knowledge, they've only been ridiculed, rejected and opposed by academics and institutional scientists on the basis of what I call proof by authority, not on any basis of science or logic. Now to your question as to whether there are any examples or experiments at managing its scale holistically. First, you cannot experiment with managing holistically. This is because you are dealing with the unavoidable complexity of human organizations and nature. Think of it this way. World War II was won by allied leaders with clear goals, good decision-making, superb planning, and the most up-to-date science, while directing research to where most needed. Today, global desertification, megafires, and climate change feeding on one another are in a are a most profound danger we've ever faced, worse than all wars ever fought. Holistic management is a way for humans to use the holistic framework to make better decisions using a holistic context to guide actions, a simple planning process using livestock to reverse desertification, the most up-to-date science available, and an ability to direct research to where most urgently required using the holistic framework in what we call the research orientation mode. 
Now, while this, like World War II, can never be subjected to experimental protocols or design, it does not make it anecdotal, as academics say managing holistically is. And we can, of course, monitor results. And there is a mass of data steadily increasing where people are monitoring results, all of that available through the Savory Institute. No, there is no example of managing at large scale because that is only possible through institutions and no individuals can bring that about. Let me just take permaculture concept as an example. You have a great concept based on the biological sciences and you have many well-established principles and designs and practices. Why then are you not doing this at scale anywhere in the world after so many years? Because that can never come about until the public, including all the individuals involved in permaculture, insist that institutions change and begin developing policies holistically. Only then can permaculture move to scale. Regenerative, organic, biodynamic, sustainable agriculture are all in the same boat. They have good biological-based foundations, generally, but none of them are or can be practiced at scale until institutions are obliged by public demand to develop policies in national and international holistic contexts. And as almost everyone, thanks to the coronavirus pandemic, can now see how even a tiny invisible virus can do more to the global economy in a month than a world war does in years, maybe, just maybe, the youth of today will demand that policy development become holistic. Six years ago in London, I gave the keynote at the Savory Institute gathering and appealed to all groups in agriculture to not go on for another century arguing the merits and validity of their solution or practice, but to unite and simply insist on policies being developed holistically. Not a single scientist in the world can argue for policies to be reductionist. Nor can anyone in any political party, branch of agriculture, university, environmental organization, or even the global drivers of finance destroying our life-supporting environment, none of them can oppose the idea of policies being holistic. This is one thing the world could unite about the need for policy to be holistic in a holistic world, needing to address future pandemics, if nothing else. Once the first policy changes in one nation, watch the dominoes fall, because no nation knows what to do. You want permaculture principles at scale? Fine, change policy, otherwise it will happen a century too late. You want to save elephants or whales in the wild? You want to stop mass emigration to Europe, changing the political face of Europe? You want to stop drug violence in America? You want to stop wasting a billion dollars a year 
in the United States on noxious weed policy? You want to minimize future pandemics? You want to save civilization by addressing global desertification, megafires and climate change at its root cause? If any of such concerns mean anything to you, and if you have any desire for future generations to enjoy a better and more secure future than the increasingly violent and chaotic world we live in today, then address the management that almost all scientists now agree is the cause of climate change. Something I remind you that only institutions can do, but they cannot do until the public insists. There has not been a single case in history of any institution that I can find leading when paradigm shifting insights are involved that only individuals can lead and keep talking about and spreading the word until it happens. Thanks, Alan. There's a lot to, to take in there, reflect on, and well, take action on for, for myself and all of the individuals listening out there. Another question I was really keen to ask you, Alan, was what you make of the growing currency of this word regenerative. Do you see any value in the widespread shift from the language of sustainable to the language of regenerative? How do you see the relation between the word regenerative and the word holistic? While I'm pretty sure much of it is about using a different name without necessarily upgrading the underlying thinking, I've been encouraged by the depth of Carol Sanford's work and what she calls regenerative or living systems thinking. Are you aware of Carol's work? And if so, I'd be curious as to what you make of it. Well, I cannot be sure. I believe the concept of regenerative agriculture arose through discussions that led Bob Rodale to coin the name. About the same time that Bill Mollison was developing permaculture, Wes Jackson was developing perennial grains, Fukuoka was promoting his work, Bob Rodell was focused on organic crop production, and of course we had the great minds whose shoulders we were standing on. Albert Howard among them. I was on the outside of this, being an ecologist, passionate about wildlife, and deeply concerned with the military and the political consequences of the desertification problem. Roger Brown produced a documentary film of me on the site of the ruins of the Charcoan civilization, talking about sustainable civilization that I saw as the bigger issue. Because throughout history, we had been able to sustain people with agriculture but had to abandon the cities. Too much violence to do so, to, to maintain them. And I had given a keynote talk to a large conventional agricultural group in the United States in which I called for an entirely new agriculture because so many civilizations had failed under organic, grass-fed, etc., in fact, under everything people were calling sustainable agriculture. And now we were facing global failure of civilization under mainstream agriculture. Bob Rodale and I struck a chord, and we stayed with one another, engaging in deep discussion. It was then that I heard the name regenerative from Bob who coined that term. I loved that, and have used it since where appropriate. 
As Bob so well put it that day, the new agriculture had to be regenerating soils, soil life, families, communities, towns and economies. In other words, holistic. It had to go beyond anything we know today if we were to save civilization as we know it. Unfortunately, I believe we are seeing people dumbing it down and simply changing names in far too many instances. In a white paper on regenerative agriculture, published by Rodale Institute, written sometime after Bob's death, I see the holistic nature and intention has gone and it talks more of regenerating soil. Wonderful and needed as that is, I am afraid that is not going to regenerate the ocean life, the national parks dying around me, or the vast desertified antique forests around me. I can only hope, as I die shortly, someone will remember that no agriculture can be truly regenerative unless it is an agriculture covering all of our Earth's surface that is managed holistically, above politics, institutional egos, competing practices, so that it is regenerating economies, communities, towns and cities and addressing climate change. You ask about Carol Sanford's regenerative business teachings. I'm impressed by her work and particularly her seven principles of a regenerative business. Clearly, anyone following such practices would have an exceptional team of creative, entrepreneurial people and the business functioning exceptionally well as she has apparently done for major clients like DuPont, Google and others. Now, rather than me tell you, ask yourself what you think. Could that truly be regenerative? Remember as you answer this, that without agriculture we cannot have a church, university, town, army, politician, government or any business. How regenerative is agriculture answers your question about any of the businesses following those exceptional good seven principles. I am afraid no business in the world is on a solid foundation until institutions through which we manage agriculture at scale are developing policies using the holistic framework or better when developed. Alan, thanks again for the candor and depth of your comments on all these important points. I'm feeling excited to start sharing our interchange with permaculturists and, and many others I know will be deeply interested in um, hearing your insights. Before I bring this to a close, one other question I have is about what in these harrowing times gives you most hope or excites you the most? Where do you see the most potential for positive cultural transformation in the coming decade or so? I recently read a survey that stated that a high percentage or a higher percentage of young people of today want to live truly meaningful lives than with previous generations. That gives me hope. If something like climate change or the present coronavirus pandemic fires them, these young people, up to look at concepts such as we're talking of now, known but ridiculed and blocked by institutional paralysis for over half a century, 
that gives us hope. This pandemic is yet one more example of reductionist policy development leading to unintended consequences. Many brilliant medical minds reducing the global, cultural, economic and environmental complexity to how do we control this virus, the problem, and developing policies. And those policies doing more economic damage than even major wars within months. There are more pandemics to come because they're associated with the destruction of the environment and ever simplified biological communities. And we are being overwhelmed by desertification and climate change. In every case, policies will be developed by narrowly trained specialists in the context of the problem. And as this continues, the unintended consequences will be ever escalating desertification, megafires, pandemics, violence and social breakdown. All of this, as we knew 40 years ago, so easy to begin addressing sensibly using all available science by simply developing all policies in a holistic context, national in the case of nations and a global holistic context in other cases. This, though, cannot happen unless the youth of today, the public, insist on institutional change. And that was Alan Savory and Dan Palmer. You can find more about Alan and his work at savory.global. Dan's website and podcast are at makingpermaculturestronger.net. I'll also include a link in the resources section to Dan's show notes so you can find the many, many resources mentioned during the conversation. Leaving this interview, what Alan said about our ability to manage complexity stuck in my mind, and so I immediately picked up a copy of the audiobook of Holistic Management, 3rd Edition, A Common Sense Revolution to Restore Our Environment. What stood out both in the book and from this conversation is how Alan turns the language of complexity around so that we do not have to name what we face, but rather focus on the desired outcomes of our holistic context, which allows us to quickly grasp what we need to do to achieve that end. Along the way, we have checks to see whether or not what we're doing is correct for reaching that long-term holistic context. This contrasted quite a deal with something that I went through in my graduate program years ago, where we used to break complex situations down into two main categories, issues and problems. Issues were the overarching conditions leading to detrimental effects, which cannot be directly addressed through a simple on-the-ground action or policy change. Problems were individual pieces we could create a plan or policy around and thus change. The issues we found drove what problems we could solve, thus ameliorating the impacts of the larger issues. Work on enough problems, the theory went, and eventually you'd solve the issue. As I understand of what Alan's doing, holistic management takes all of that, wraps it up in one process, and allows us to continuously work on both the issues and problems in parallel. Though I know there's much more to the method than my words here express, there exists a tangible power behind holistic management to achieve a beautiful, bountiful world where we've afforested the deserts and reversed climate change. But those are just my thoughts in the moment. What are yours? Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email, show at the permaculturepodcast.com. 
As I mentioned in the beginning, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. One of those, as we approach the 10th anniversary of the podcast, is the annual Summer to Fall fundraiser. My goal for this fundraiser is twofold. They include upgrading the computer where I edit the show, and to invest in some video equipment to record video interviews and site tours once the world recovers from COVID. To go along with the fundraiser, for anyone donating $50 or more, please include something for postage, international listeners. If you include your address in the notes for the donation, I'll send you a USB drive with every currently available interview, monologue, and discussion from the first decade of the Permaculture Podcast. That includes the first show from 2010, all the way up to the 10th anniversary episode out on October 10th of this year. If you'd like to donate, you can do so online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or by mail to my new address, Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. Also, I'm here to help you find the resources necessary to bring your vision of permaculture into the world. You can schedule a one-on-one consultation with me, or a more casual, meandering conversation if you prefer, at calendly.com permaculture. Finally, there are more voices in the world doing amazing work than I could ever have the possibility to record an interview with. So if you've ever thought, I'd love to hear an interview with a member of my community on the Permaculture Podcast, now's the opportunity. I'd like to teach you how to record a conversation and send it to me to share on the show. You don't need to edit or produce the interview. I'll take care of all of that. Just record the conversation. I'm particularly interested in stories recorded by women and young people and conversations from black, indigenous, and people of color communities. If you're interested, let me know. Send an email to show at permaculturepodcast.com with the subject My Community and pitch me the story you'd like to share. Until the next time, spend each day managing complexity while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.